0: We want to read our scripture lessons for today. Psalm 105 verses 16 through 19 is our Old Testament text. Psalm 105 is a long historical psalm, and we're just going to read a little bit of the part about what was going on with Joseph, the patriarch. Joseph, the son of Israel. Joseph, one of the twelve brothers, he ends up down in Egypt despite all the things that uh, he had thought about and heard about himself, the dreams he had. And here's what the scriptures say about that. Listen here to God's word. And he, God, called for a famine upon the land, that is, the land of Israel. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters He himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Amen. Our gospel lesson is from Mark, the eighth chapter. We usually read this passage from Matthew 16. It's a, you know, it's... The declaration of profession of who is the Lord Jesus he's the Christ the Son of the Living God Uh, we want to pay particular attention to what Jesus teaches his disciples subsequent to that revelation listen here again to God's Word Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he questioned his disciples saying to them who do people say that I am they told him saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And Jesus, Jesus warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, And be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me In my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Then our primary text today is from Acts, the 21st chapter, the first 14 verses. Last week, we finished up about a month of going through the, Paul's dealings with the Ephesian elders on the shores of Miletus. <clears throat> he finishes that. Now he's going to be hard-pressed, hard in his mind, going forward over to Jerusalem. That's where he wants to go, and we catch up with him on his journey today. Listen here to God's Word. When we had parted from them, that is, from the Ephesian elders, and had set sail We ran a straight course to Cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul, through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Thomas and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, We, as well as the local residents, began begging Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's word, which we've read. Lord Jesus, we gather and sit here today as your sheep. And we ask you, our good shepherd, to feed us, to nurture us, who set before us the way in which we should go. We desire to receive your ministry, your direction for our lives. So come, work by the power of your Holy Spirit, that your name may be praised in us and throughout all the earth. Amen. What's the Lord saying is the question that was in the heart and mind of Eric Liddell in the summer of 1924. If you're not familiar with who Eric Liddell is, the movie Chariots of Fire tell his story. But the summer of 1924 was an Olympic summer, and Eric Liddell was an Olympian, uh, a competitor for Great Britain. Uh, He was to run in the 100-meter dash, that was his race, that was his event, his specialty. Eric Liddell was also a good Scottish Presbyterian, uh, born a son of missionaries in China, raised though outside London, but in good Presbyterian circles that he knew, was convicted of, that the Lord's Day was to be honored, that the uh, Fourth Commandment was still in place, and that he, he, all along, he, he. this had been his practice he did not compete on the lord's day on sundays the team goes over to paris is where the olympics were that year 1924 and wouldn't you know it the 100 yard dash final is on a sunday and he says i cannot compete i will not compete And so people began to reason with him about why he should compete, a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, an opportunity to do well for your country, all sorts of reasons. He held firm, no, I cannot, will not. Others began to reproach him. Don't you realize you're doing a bad thing here? You're letting us down? maintained where he was, and others began to ridicule him. Well, that sure is a thoroughly primitive notion to take. What kind of fool believes that? So Eric Liddell was asking, what's the Lord saying? What should I do? And should I compete or not? And to him, it was very clear. The Lord said, no, you should not compete. And so he did not. You know the result. He ran in the 400-meter dash and won the gold. He didn't run the 100, but another friend of his on the team did and won it for Great Britain that year. In the movie, he says a famous line, God made me fast... And I feel his pleasure when I run. Well, the screenwriter wrote that. Eric Liddell never said that. What Eric Liddell said, what he knew, he says, God made me for China. That's where his sights were set, to go to China, to serve as a missionary. That's what he knew. He went to honor God above all else. That's why he could say, here's what the Lord has said, I'm going to honor that. He did go to China as a missionary. Had a wife, took a wife. They had two children, eventually a third as well. But he's there doing wonderful work. World War II comes along, Japanese occupation of China. He finally has to decide to send his wife, his pregnant wife and their two daughters, over to Canada for safety because of what will happen if the Japanese come and take them. He stays there. He ends up in a concentration camp, a Japanese concentration camp. And uh, he was a great moral force for good there. Apparently the, uh, the concentration camp, because of just the pressures that were there, unlikely to survive, all so- sorts of moral laxity began to take place, uh, particularly among young people with regard to sexuality. And he was one able to, in, in a gracious, good way, say, hold on. You forget who you are. You're doing this because you think you're going you have no future. But you do have a future before God. Don't dishonor him. And, but in a good way, it had a profound and good effect. Everyone recognized that he was a good man there. One day he just fell over dead. It turned out that after the autopsy was done, that he had a, a brain tumor, came up, and boom, just, and he, he died like that. But he stood by what he knew. God made me for China. Despite what everyone else said, what they would counsel him, God made me for China. Now, Paul's situation here in Acts 21 is somewhat similar. He's traveling to Jerusalem. In chapter 20, verse 22, we saw what his conviction is. He said, Be bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem. So he he had a sincere conviction, uh, understanding that God said, I want you now to go to Jerusalem. He's on his way there. He's journeying. He couldn't just hop on a plane and go. He, he journeys there. He goes on to say, this is to the Ephesian elders, I don't know what awaits me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen there, but he, he says, it's going to be tough for me. Well, you know, as we read through here today and we read before, there is in fact a consistent witness of the Holy Spirit that say bonds and affliction, hard times await Paul if he goes to Jerusalem. In fact, when they get to Tyre, they look up the church, they stay there for 7 days, good relationship, he had not been there before. When they what they're telling him is that you should not set foot in Jerusalem at all. Paul saying, "What is the Lord saying?" <laughs> but he's convicted and convinced. I am called by God to go to Jerusalem now. He gets to Caesarea. Again, meeting with the church. Agabus, a prophet from Jerusalem, comes down and does a demonstration takes the belt of Paul and binds his hands together and says, if you go to Jerusalem, here's what awaits you. You'll be bound up and imprisoned. And all the people there, likewise, counsel him, don't go to Jerusalem. And it's interesting in the text, it's Luke, as he's writing, says, and we likewise, we told him that. So it's not just those people, but his own traveling companions. There were about seven or eight of them. They said, don't, Paul, don't go. The Holy Spirit says bad things are going to happen if you go to Jerusalem. Now there's something to note here. Paul is not someone who's a lone ranger sort of running around doing his own thing. He always seeks to be related properly to the church and churches. So when he gets to Tyre, he looks for the church. Where's the church? I want to be among those, those folk. He respects people there. He listens to them. He does not try to avoid them. And so this body of people, no matter where the locale is, he he seeks them out, he listens to them, and they bear a united voice saying, affliction awaits you as you go forward into Jerusalem. We think you should not go at all. Paul has no attitude towards them. He's not saying, well, you guys are just stupid. You're just out of here. He respects them. He understands who they are. So it's not like he has a bad attitude. Yet we read here in verse 13, Paul says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. They were much convicted by this. He was likewise, but it breaks his heart to see them that way. He says, you break my heart because I don't want to break your heart but yet I cannot do otherwise than what God has called me to do, which is to go to Jerusalem now. So he must follow Christ even as they lament. Now I suspect that part of what Paul understands all through his life, at the very outset of his Christian life, in Acts chapter 9 we read where uh, the Holy Spirit told Ananias, who was going to pray for Paul, says, I must show him all that he must suffer for my sake, for my name's sake. So Paul knew from the outset that his, his life of discipleship, his life of following after Christ, would involve suffering. Uh, so Paul does not dispute the accuracy of what the church tells him, that he's going to suffer bonds and affliction and dreadful things in Jerusalem, what he differs with him on is how he should respond to that approaching reality. And he says, I am ready to suffer. I'm ready even to die for Christ. Dear friends, suffering is a part of the Christian life. Though we live in a society where we have every ease, every luxury, every good thing, suffering will come to us as well, despite that. Jesus, in his words in Mark 8, begins to introduce this to the disciples. They have no notion of this this idea. When the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, all is alleviated. The song we were singing We see sunset coming, but sunrise is coming. You know, they think the Messiah means the sunrise is here and suffering's gone, right? Jesus tells them, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. They're going to execute me. They're going to torture me. They're going to cause me to suffer and kill me. Can't be. Can't be. And, of course, you remember that Peter has the audacity To begin to rebuke Jesus for what he said. Have you ever had audacity like that? I have. This can't happen. This is not possible. This can't be. You got it messed up, God. He began to rebuke Jesus for what he taught. And in one of the most stern and firm passages you'll find, Jesus, looking at his disciples, turns to Peter and rebukes him. says, get behind me, Satan. You have the interest of man, not God, in your heart. And that's not good. Then... He proceeds to teach the disciples, and in teaching them, teaches us. He says, if you would be my disciple, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. There's no one, whether you live in a king's palace, or in a refugee tent, or anywhere in between, to whom that Teaching of Jesus does not apply. If you would follow Jesus, you must take up your cross, deny yourself to follow him. Because we are by nature prone to do our own thing, to do the human thing, to do that which is easiest and best and makes us most liked by the people around us. And he's not against that unless that conflicts with what God has said what God has said about how life is, how we should conduct our lives, or what we should do. Consequently, every Christian who's ever lived has had to face the reality of walking differently from the world. Specifically, on matters of which the Bible teaches We must believe God, not the world. Have faith that what he says is true and right and good altogether. Despite how people may reject it or cast doubt about it or abuse it, whatever it would be, believe God. So now, young persons and middle-aged persons and old people, listen here. Here's where it's at today. God made us human beings male and female. God made you one and not the other. You don't have to worry about which one you are. He made it physically evident which you are, male or female. It's been that way from the beginning. And of course, this is being challenged. The whole world is saying that is... You're living in a binary universe, that's wrong. It's wrong-headed, it's primitive, it's outdated. But it's right, just so you know. And today, there will be an element of self-denial that you have to have as you stand, and graciously, as you can, stand for that truth. God made us male and female. We'll talk another time about gender dysphoria and what that means and what it does not mean and how to deal with that, but that's, today, all we want to make is, is this simple assertion. What says here, believe God, not the world. Take up your cross. Also, again, greatly challenged today, is live chaste lives. We see all around us a breakdown of morality. Uh, you've heard people say, you don't need to get married anymore. Now you realize, we have a lot of visitors here. Back when I was about 19, 20, 21, somewhere in through there, I was a prophet. Did you know that? I was. I had my prophet's robe on me. I had long hair. And uh, I've told you this story. I was at my, my godparents' house, my Aunt Laura and Uncle Bud. And I was back home on vacation from college, and I declared to them, oh, that Lord Uncle Bud, five or 10 years, marriage won't be around anymore at all. Marriage is an outdated institution. Back then, I was on the forefront of telling what was coming. I was a prophet, but I was a false prophet, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, that may come that way, but, but marriage is of God. God commends us to live chaste lives outside of the bonds of marriage. There's a proliferation of living together without marriage. There's a proliferation of sexual license and pornography. All those things don't do that. Seek God's purpose. Don't seek merely personal pleasure. Don't seek merely money, position, ease, etc. Just as God made Eric Liddell for China, if you're a Christian, he made you and remade you for himself. That may well involve some suffering because you're at odds with the way things are. We read the passage from Psalm 105 because I think that those four verses are instructive for us. As a young man, 14, 15, 16 years old, Joseph, unbidden, unasked for, received these visions and dreams that seemed to indicate he was going to be elevated above his brothers and even above his parents, and he was going to be in a position of supreme authority, the sun. Moon would bow down to him. Uh, It intimated that he would do well, he'd prosper, he'd rule. Seemed like no sooner than he had these visions and these dreams than all went downhill. His brothers tried to kill him, but they decided not. They sell him as a slave into Egypt. He goes there, does well, but then Potiphar's wife, his boss's wife, tries to seduce him. He refuses. By the way, by that time, most of us, it's like the concentration camp people, if God's going to let these things happen to me, I might as well just go ahead and live the way I want, enjoy the pleasures of the day, right? But he tells Potiphar's wife, how could we do this against your husband, who's committed all that he has to me, and sin against God? Despite all that had happened, he was very conscious that he he lived before God and sinned against God. He got thrown in prison on a trumped-up charge. People there, he rises to the top again, but people who say they're going to mention his case to the Pharaoh do not. What it says in Psalm 105 is that the word of the Lord tested him. Now, That wasn't like a geography test, A, B, C, D. It wasn't like that at all. Uh, It tested him in the sense that it refined, it purified, it, it made clear where his affections lay, that it would show forth who he was and what he believed in, the circumstances like that. By the way, the circumstances of your life are the means by which God tests, refines you. It's not A, B, C, D, F like on this, this Psalm 96. No, this is to refine and purify, to test in that way. To, when I taught homeschool classes, I never gave tests. I gave opportunities to demonstrate excellence. Isn't that wonderful? A little double speak. An opportunity to demonstrate excellence. This is not even that. This is, this is where God is re- He will take circumstances and refine your life in a good way. Trust Him. So that's what Psalm 105 tells us about Joseph. God had, and God had a much wider perspective than just Joseph in mind. He had the whole people, all the land, now, I'd like to give a the personal example I talked about. I spoke yesterday with a friend out in Indiana whose wife has just been diagnosed as stage one Alzheimer's. Uh, mid-50s couple. And you know it's that's devastating. Christian people, sound, solid Christian people. What do you say? Why'd this happen? We talked. I asked, well, how are you all doing? How are you doing? How's your wife doing, Etc. He said, well, sometimes we just sit and weep. I was weeping while I talked with him on the phone. It's a hard thing. He said, sometimes we just sit and weep. But, he said, we believe that God is the Lord of all, he has his purposes in this, and we purpose to follow him and work our way through this, live our way through this, honoring him in all that we do. And they laid out some things they, 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 they planned to do. I was encouraged by that. I mean, I was just buoyed up. There wasn't a denial of the pain and that, you know, what's ahead. There was no denial of that. But it was to say that beyond that, beyond this, we see the hand of God, and we believe and trust that God's hand is good, that he will care for us, he'll get us through. So what's the Lord saying? It's the title of the sermon today. He's saying today what he said all along. Come, follow me. Bear your cross as appropriate in the circumstances of your life. Bear your cross, but come, follow me. The Apostle Paul was sent to do that, was set to do that. He's following Christ. He said, I'm willing to suffer for him, I'm willing to die for him. Remember the famous words written in the journal by Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries killed by Indians in South America in 56, I think it was, 57, somewhere in through there. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or, as Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Come, Jesus says, come, take up your cross daily and follow me. Amen.